Hi, everyone. I'm Laura Flora Shaw, and this is Science Montessori and Parenting from White Paper Press, the publisher of the Montessori White Papers. SMP, we discuss the intersections of science, Montessori, and parenting. And if you're not yet a member of the SMP Facebook group, look us up and join in on the conversation. It's a really great place to get vetted information and to get your questions answered. In fact, if you pose a question to the SMP Facebook group, it might even be answered here on this very podcast. In today's episode, I talk with Dr. Jamie Jones, one of our scientific advisory editors here at White Paper Press, and we discuss a very important topic trauma. If after listening, you're interested in learning more about how Montessori classrooms help children exposed to trauma, I recommend checking out Dr. Jacqueline Constantino's article on that very topic in volume two of the Montessori white papers. You can also find some other resources on trauma on our website at www.whitepaperpress.us. Now let's dive into the conversation with Dr. Jones. I'm Jamie Jones. I'm a pediatric neuropsychologist with a specialty in trauma. And how many years have you been in practice? I'll do the longer version of this. So I was initially trained as a child psychologist, Mm -hmm. um, practiced specifically working with kids with trauma histories for a few years before going back and doing a training in pediatric neuropsych. So licensed for a little over 20 years doing neuropsych for the last about 10 Okay, so that's interesting. So you had a child psychology background, yes, and then you went back for a neuropsych background, yes. And what made you do that? So a couple of things. I was interested in neuropsych as a grad student, but I'm old enough that when I was a grad student, pediatric neuropsych wasn't a thing. And at the time, most of neuropsych was focused on adults, and the populations that I had access to were largely adults who were dementing. Um, and just wasn't anything I was particularly interested in. Also, sort of thought it was backwards. It's like, why do we know more about dementing brains than any other kind of brain? So chose to focus on more traditional child psychology, play therapy, specialized in trauma. And as I practiced, really noticed the number of children that I was working with that had attentional problems and learning problems, you know, as a result of their trauma histories that led me to go back into neuropsychology, sort of, wouldn't say mid-career, but later in my career. You know, at that point, neuropsych was also focused on looking at the developing brain. So it sort of developed a, a niche of, you know, neuropsychology and the impact of trauma. So this is interesting because trauma now is a very hot topic, which is a very sad thing to say, actually. It's a hot topic in public policy, in the media. Parenting experts talk about trauma, especially how it relates to the developing brain. But when we are talking about trauma, what exactly are we talking about? What is trauma? I think that's a great question. Um, I think it depends on who you ask, right? So trauma, like everything else in life, it's something that has its own history. So when we first started talking about trauma, we talked only about sort of classic war veterans, like like trauma was designed as you had been in a situation where your life was physically in danger, right? You could have died or someone right next to you could have died. 
And historically, early on, that meant that the only people eligible for treatment were war veterans and police officers. Back then, with the old definition, there was no understanding that people that had been victims of rape and child victims of you know, sexual assault could also be traumatized because although their lives weren't in danger, they certainly felt threatened. So from an emotional sort of standpoint, trauma is now defined as an event that either threatened your life, could have potentially threatened your life, or was a threat to personal integrity, right? So it's sort of more encompassing. From a neurobiological perspective, trauma is something that basically overwhelms our circuits. So it's something that your brain cannot handle. The challenge is that what may overwhelm one brain may not overwhelm another. So trauma is something that we can all agree certain things are traumatic, right? Like if I pulled a gun and threatened you, that would traumatize most people. But there's also a lot of individual variability on what crosses that line of becoming overwhelming. Certain people are more likely to be traumatized than others, depending on their sort of baseline neurology. Part of my frustration with the word trauma is that sometimes trauma and stress get confused. Yes. Right? Like we all experience stress. Not all of us have been traumatized. Um, and I think often that distinction isn't made. So there's also the term of toxic stress as well. How do you see that as relating to trauma? I, I think that toxic stress gets used in differing ways. I mean, certainly there's the implication that there's a level of stress that becomes harmful, which is true. You know, I mean, the, there's tons of research and, you know, a lot of sort of popular knowledge that a lot of stress is not good for you. Toxic stress or stress that is at a level that's harmful is not the same thing as trauma and certainly isn't good for you and certainly... The longer it goes on, the, the worse it becomes for you, but different. So you think they get kind of, they get conflated? I do. Yeah. I do. And I, I think that the word trauma and toxic stress get confused. I think the word trauma and stress get confused. You know, I, I think that trauma gets talked about very differently in public spheres than it does in research spheres. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a minute because... I think in, in public policy, it's used with good intentions, right? The intention is to be able to get funds or programs, resources necessary to help children who may be underserved or you know, at risk, in poverty, this sort of thing. So stress, toxic stress, trauma, these are generally the words that are used a lot in addition to the impact that all of this has on the developing brain. Right. And parenting experts will also use this. Parenting experts who are generally talking to audiences of, I would say, mostly middle to upper class parents. Uh, look what a traumatic experience can do to the developing brain. And then, of course, they'll show the very famous developing brain of a three-year-old, the normal brain, and then a brain that has, uh, has been severely stunted in growth. Right. But unfortunately, the study that that picture comes from doesn't actually tell us anything about the stunted brain right. and what they actually experience, except there it could be that this child was kept in a closet right. for multiple years, which is highly extreme. Right. Right. So sometimes it feels like 
we're talking about trauma in just saying something that could upset somebody in a way, you know, just or doing something that just makes somebody upset and then therefore they can be traumatized. But what is your impression? I think that historically, you know, and as someone who has been doing this for 20 years now, I I find it, you know, sort of interesting the way the pendulum swings, right? Like in the beginning and even before I started practicing, there was a fight to get incidents that were not considered traumatic to be considered traumatic, right? right? So that, that initially there was this fight to get trauma to be more inclusive, yeah, right? And now it seems like the pendulum has swung the other way, and now it's the, you know, everything is traumatic. My concern with both perspectives is that Neither are completely accurate. It is true that you can be traumatized even if your life was not actually in danger. People that are abused are traumatized. It is also true that something that I might find traumatic, you may not find traumatic because of how we're wired. It is not true that people are as easily traumatized as a lot of people would want parents to think. And it's also not true, I think my biggest concern is it's not true that trauma happens in isolation. So trauma happens, but then the world reacts. So we know, and we've known for a long time, that one of the best predictors of how children following sexual abuse do in their recovery is the reactions of their mothers. The trauma impacts you, but then so do people's reactions. If a child has an environment where parents, in particular the mom, which I have to say from a political perspective I find annoying because it's always the mom. It's always the mother. But in this case it really was the mom. Mom really is a a more important factor here. But when mom is more supportive, the child does better. Yes, the trauma is significant, but so is what happens after. So yes, there are times that parents might inadvertently do things that are traumatic to certain children. But there's repair, right? And that it's not just trauma, 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 especially parents who have children who aren't neurotypical who are easier to traumatize, Mm. right? Who because they become more... So if you think about the biological definition of something happened that overwhelmed your circuits, right? So if you have a system that is more easily overwhelmed, it's entirely possible that your parents could overwhelm that. Right. And send you into fight flight. Right. Not intentionally. Like, we all make mistakes. But if a parent then realizes, oh, my goodness, I just sent you into fight flight. I am so sorry. Let me help re-regulate you and down-regulate you so that you're now calm again. That is not an experience that's going to turn out with a long-term negative impact. No. And in fact, I, I would think that from that experience, a child can recognize and that they can get upset and be impacted in the moment, but that they can recover from it as well. Absolutely, and that the people in their life can help them recover, that they both have the internal capacity to recover, but even people that can, you know, upset you and hurt you can also then help you recover. And I think that piece of it gets lost, that, that yes, parents make mistakes, we all do, but it's not a set in stone incident. And I think that's exactly how it often gets portrayed. This incident occurs, therefore the brain is permanently harmed by that incident, as if it becomes fixed and set, forgetting that it's actually highly plastic. Right. Uh, and it can recover from so much. Right. If it couldn't, how would we even be here? We wouldn't. Right. And, and I think that 
one of the things that I really love about trauma as a research area is the number of questions that have to do with not only, you know, what is trauma, but what is trauma for a certain person of a certain age, of a certain gender, of a certain, you know, neurotypical style or non-neurotypical style, right? That there are so many levels of nuance to what is traumatic. I think that thing that makes it very interesting from a research perspective also makes it very challenging from a public policy perspective because public policy doesn't tend to be about individuals and individual differences. It tends to be about what works for the masses. And that doesn't work with trauma because even trauma, even when the same trauma is experienced by masses, right? So when the trauma is a hurricane or, you know, something that everybody experienced the trauma, people react very differently. Yeah, that's such a good point. So there's research on orchid children versus dandelion children. Have you heard about this? I have not heard those yeah. terms. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot, this research comes, a lot of it comes out of uh, Bruce Ellis's work. Okay. Yeah, so it, but it's talking about, but it, again, I think it's still putting children in sort of one or two categories, right, right. as opposed to there are probably more more categories. We like our binary categories. We like our. <laughs> it's very easy for our brain yeah, to handle. Our, you know, that our thinking. brains like simplicity, but life isn't. I mean, life isn't that simple, and certainly there are children who are more resilient than others, but I don't think we have a good grasp on what it is that, you know, sort of helps with resiliency or not. Mm -hmm. um, we have ideas, but I don't think it's that simple. I don't think it's like you're an orchid or a dandelion or like I can imagine what those labels mean. But I, I think, you know, part of it is wanting things to be simple. Right. You know, and, and that sort of dichotomy in our society. Yeah, for sure. So what do you think that teachers need to know about trauma? Because I just came back from a Montessori conference, and we have in our second volume, we have an article on Montessori and trauma in the classroom. And there was a lot of interest in that article in particular. Mm -hmm. So we have more teachers that are working in public Montessori schools. So I think they think that they're seeing are more children who have experienced mm -hmm. trauma. Again, I don't know how they're defining it, essentially. right. right. But what is it that you think that they need to know? I think a couple of things. I think that teachers need to know that trauma is disorganizing, right? So trauma, whatever the event was, has a disorganizing impact on both sort of neurology and behavior. So children post-trauma tend to need more structure. They tend to need more support. And I think one of the things that happens is that... When children experience trauma, people feel bad for them, right? rightfully so, and that one of the things that parents and teachers often do when they feel bad for a child is kind of pull back on expectations, you know, and say, well, you know, you're going through a hard time. We won't expect you to do X. We won't expect you to follow the rules. The challenge with that is that that is actually, although it seems intuitive, not what that child needs. That child needs everything else in life to stay the same. So they're actually benefited from as much external organization as they can get so that the rules that were the rules before the trauma are still the rules now and the behavioral expectations that existed before the trauma are still there now. Um, I think the other thing that's important for teachers to recognize is that when children go into fight flight, they're not in a state that they can learn. Right. And it's important that the teachers you know, either 
by directly helping the child or by giving the child space to calm down, the child's allowed to re-regulate before being asked to do a task because no one can learn when they're, you know, in that state. Right, exactly. And that's actually what our article talked about is how to help them through those fight or flight Mm -hmm. moments and help them to be able to to re-regulate. Do you have any advice in terms of how teachers can work with the parents of these children as well? I mean, because I think it's a very strong, it's very important to have a good parent school partnership. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So depending on what the experience is, is there a way to be able to talk to the parents to help them also have some consistency between the school environment and the home environment? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I think, you know, the more schools and parents are on the same page with any child, the better. Um, I think that depending on what the trauma is, certain children will be triggered, well, all children will be triggered by certain things. So if it's something that parents are comfortable telling the teachers, it would be very helpful for teachers to know certain things that might be upsetting the children. I think it's also important for school to share with parents specifics of what happened. I think that both spheres tend to sort of do the, well, we took care of it here, so we don't need to tell you about it there. But I think that, you know, when children have had traumatic experiences, that needs to not be the case. You know, the the schools need to be saying, you know, such and such time, this happened, this was the child's reaction, this was how we dealt with it. And that the same thing, if a child has a bad evening, that the school is told the next morning, by the way, because a child who was dysregulated last evening might still be dysregulated this morning. And if the school knows that, they can kind of keep an eye on things. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges with children who've been traumatized is that once traumatized, easier to become traumatized again, Mm. right? And so that part of the repair needs to be making sure that kids aren't being, you know, re-triggered and sent into fight flight and sort of having those, you know, those, you know, circuits and, you know, kind of ways of, of reacting becoming really hardwired. So consistency is, you know, always important. I think, you know, another important message for teachers and parents is the notion that kids are resilient. I think that as much as trauma needs to be talked about and dealt with and addressed, it's also not something that needs to break someone. So that I think part of why behavioral expectations change and the world changes for kids who've been traumatized is this notion of like, oh my God, something bad's happened to you and now we have to be extra protective. Mm -hmm. As opposed to something bad happened to you and we're going to help you through it, but you can also go on. And we're going to give you the tools to go on. And, you know, and that's me assuming that whatever the trauma was is taken care of, right? So if there is an issue where the child needs to be protected, that they have been protected. Um, But that, you know, that the message is you can cope with this, we can deal with this, and we can move on together. Yeah, I think that's such an important point where the expectation is, is that they will recover. You send that message to the child so that they can recognize that they do have the power to recover because I think if everybody's overly anxious, you send exactly the opposite message and you're telling them that in fact they are fragile right? and we need to empower, Yeah, I think all children, but especially children who've experienced trauma. Well, and especially young children who don't really yet have the capacity to deal with that, right? So that for young children who's, you know, experienced a trauma and then their whole world changes because people are kind of walking on eggshells, 
that's a child who's just going to experience even more stress and trauma because their whole world has changed following. So the more that things can stay the same, the better things will be for them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So there's also, I read recently that there's some research that suggests that trauma can look, for instance, like ADHD. A lot. Like, yeah. Well, because, you know, and I talk about this a lot um, with other professionals and with social workers, that the reality of children and the reality of humans in general is we only have a limited set of behaviors. And especially children who don't have the coping skills that adults have, anxiety, stress, trauma, hyperactivity all look the same, right? When children have ADHD, they're hyperactive. When children have elevated levels of anxiety, they run all around the room. When children are stressed, they run all around the room because, you know, they haven't learned to deep breathe, to count to 10. They just run. Right. And so it can be difficult to distinguish between, you know, typical level anxiety, typical level stress, you know, an anxiety level that it's the result of trauma or hyperactivity. Um, or even lack of sleep. Absolutely. Lack of a good, I mean, there's so much that goes into a child's behavior. It's really important to know a child well enough and know them across a variety of settings. So a kid who has ADHD is going to be hyperactive across settings and for no particular reason. Children who become overly active because they're stressed will become overly active when they're stressed. So if you have a kid who is fine, 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 you bring up a certain topic or something happens and now they're spinning around the room, that pattern doesn't make me think ADHD. That pattern makes me think what just happened that I set this kid into an excited state. That is more a pattern consistent with trauma. Same thing with the attentional aspect of it. Of course, if you're in fight flight, you're not paying attention. But kids with ADHD don't pay attention even when they're perfectly calm. Right? So it's the looking across setting. Mm -hmm. My concern with kids who have trauma histories that present as if they have ADHD is that when they're then treated for ADHD, with that makes them worse. So the last thing you want to do for someone who's anxious is give them a stimulant. Right, exactly. Well, that's why I think children need to be assessed by neuropsychologists who can do a comprehensive workup yeah. as opposed and, to by right. pediatricians. It's like being able to look at the whole picture and taking the time to talk to people that see the child in a variety of settings. Like how do they behave at home? How do they behave at school? You know, how do they do under periods of stress? How do mm -hmm. they do when they're just chilling out? Mm -hmm. You know, and are there differences? Yeah, so that's an important point, I think, for both parents and teachers. For teachers to observe the students across different environments, what, how are they on the playground? How are they in the classroom? How are they during the yeah. transition time? And then for parents to be able to also observe the children in a variety of situations as well and to share that information Absolutely. with one another. And I think that, you know, part of why it's so important is to share information in addition to just the sharing of information is we all have our biases. So often parents judge their child's level of activity through their own filter of tiredness. Um, my favorite study ever, and it's been decades at this point, was a, it was a very well done study, but it looked at two groups of children. So it looked at children who'd been diagnosed with ADHD and children who had not. And within those two groups had two types of data. So had parent support, or parent report rather, and had 
actual behavioral observations. And one of the questions asked of the parents was, are there times of day that your child is more hyperactive, out of control, poorly behaved? And both groups of parents reported that their children were like most poorly behaved between like four and five in the evening, whether your kid had you know ADHD or not. And the actual behavioral observations did not support that, that children actually were not any more poorly behaved between four and five than they were at any other time of the day. But that's not how parents saw it. And when I first read the story of the story, this research, it was you know years ago and my children were young. And I'm like, how could this be? Parents are good reporters, right? And my little one, who was two at the time, came to me on a Saturday morning. was like, Mama, read me a story. I'm like, sure, you know, pull him in my lap. You know, and it was a couple days later, and his older brother was doing his homework, and I was cooking dinner, and he came in the kitchen and like, Mama, read me a story. And I'm like, not now, right? And he left. 30 seconds later, Mama, now? Because he's two. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, no, right? Like, after dinner. And then I realized... He's doing the same thing. What's different is me. I'm not in a place I want to be reading you a story, right? right? And so parents have their biases. Teachers have their biases because when you're dealing with a room full of people, you need children to be doing certain, you know, like if I'm talking to child A, I need child B to be working on their own stuff and not bugging me. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, we all have our biases. And so everybody, we all need to keep all of that in mind. H how do you think in terms of children who, who come from low social economic status families, so children who are in poverty, do you think that that population in particular ends up experiencing more trauma than other populations? Or is it just they are experiencing stress more often because the lives are, are more stressful for the adults? And I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Both. So I think that living without resources is hugely stressful. Yes. And so certainly puts you at risk for, you know, that term toxic stress and just having, you know, to forever be worrying about basic food and safety and shelter. So that's not good. I think layered on top of that, children in those communities are more at risk for being traumatized because when parents are stressed, they have poorer coping skills, are more likely to be abusive, are more likely to make choices that put their children in dangerous situations, and are stressed themselves. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's hard to be a parent on a good day. It's harder to be a parent when you're stressed. So I think both are true. My concern, I don't know why I'm being thoughtful. I'm talking to you. I don't know why I don't just say this. <laughs> My concern is how that gets applied. Yeah. Like, absolutely, living in poverty is a horrible thing. Uh, you know, obviously, living in poverty puts you at risk for things. Yeah. My concern is that that then gets translated to, if you live in poverty, you're never going to accomplish anything. Exactly. Um, which is not true. Right. Um, because the resiliency factors are still there. The ability for parents to repair is still there. Some of the best parents I know are parents who have had to cope with horrible levels of poverty and abuse. So that's my concern that, you know, it's like, obviously it's bad. Obviously living in poverty is a bad thing. Obviously not having resources is a bad thing. That doesn't mean you're doomed. Yeah. Um, certainly it means there are things we should be doing to help. Like, why are you living in poverty in the wealthiest country in the world? But that's another podcast. Oh, that. <laughs> Don't even get me started. Yes, exactly. Um, but 
you know, I, I'm really concerned with this narrative that, you know, you live in a bad neighborhood, therefore you're doomed and we don't have to pay attention to you because no good's going to come of it. Right. Um, right. Or especially, I mean, especially, uh, you know, I've heard certain narratives where, well, the children, you know, they've been living in their in their household for three years. So they're, they're doomed now their, their brain is set, you know, because the first three years are so critical. So there's really not much that we can do for those, for those children, which is just wrong. Yeah. And and terrible. And yeah. And you know, and garbage, um, you know, certainly the first three years are important. Certainly, you know, I wish they didn't have those first three years that they had, but there are always things we can do and it's never makes sense to write a person off. In my right. mind. Yes, I'm glad that we're putting money into the first three years, the first five years. Those are important. But so are years five through seven and seven through nine and nine through 12. We continue to grow. We continue to learn things. Children learn as much from six to eight as they do earlier. Yeah. So, yeah, it's that pendulum thing. It it's, is. It's like before the zero to five, zero to three, there was no attention there, which was bad. You know, then it was like, good, 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 early development, good. But right. now it's like, only early. And I'm like, no. Yeah. Development. Exactly. A development across the lifespan. Right. 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 So it's not about, oh, we need to do everything early on right. for later effects, and then we can forget about them later on. Right. It's, no, we actually need to take care of people yes. across the course of their <laughs> development. Every, yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. It's really strange that we're not. We're, we're not there yet, but hopefully all these pendulum swings with all these particular populations, we can get to that point of recognizing yeah. that all populations at all stages of life are important and at some point may need some sort of support. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's part of why I love working with multidisciplinary teams, right? Because the reality of human beings and the reality of the areas we become expert in is that's what we do. And I think it's important to spend time talking with people who do other things so that we can be aware of our blind spots and our biases and have everybody working together. Exactly. And that's why I think too, in terms of biases, if we're working in a school, for instance, that generally has a low SES, that doesn't mean all those students are the same, all those families are the same. We really have to take the time to get to know each child each situation, because as you said, each child has their own neurology, right? right. Uh, but really get to know each situation and not come to the table with assumptions, right? Not come to the table assuming, for instance, that these parents don't love their children and don't care and they're and how right. horrible they are or anything of that sort. You know, assume that every parent does love their child, and sometimes. You know, parents go through situations that make it extremely stressful to be able to express that to their children on a daily basis in an appropriate way. But that doesn't mean that they don't feel those things and want to be able to express those things. Of course. But they have other things going on as well. Uh, And sometimes I feel like we can, we as a society can just, again, lump people into groups uh, and make make the wrong assumptions. Um, On the flip side, sometimes I feel that some of these narratives that we're talking about, they are... They are expressed to populations that are hyper vigilant and hypersensitive about their parenting, and that can make them overly anxious. You you will have parents who read parenting books and are trying to learn how to be the best parents that they can yeah. be, and it's like it's that little information that thing. What is it? A little bit of knowledge is not necessarily a good thing. 
Right, exactly. Then it becomes, I don't want my child to be upset. Right. It can go to the other extreme. Yeah, I, I think, you know, again, it, it's the pendulum, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also this black and white, either or, you know. And I get it. Our brains like that. Our brains like easy. Our brains like easy category. You know, it's like, is it a dandelion or an orchid? Because then I know where it goes and I don't have to think about it anymore. Right. And it takes a whole lot of my time and energy if I have to actually think about it. But the reality is all parents make mistakes. There is no perfect parent. Parents who worry about everything they do are sometimes so anxious that they're not enjoying their child. Yes. And just the experience of being a parent. And I think I wish there was more of an acknowledgement that we all make mistakes, we all blow it, but we also all have the capacity to make it better. That's right. Repair is, like yeah, you said, is you so know, important. When you yell at your kid, because we all do, yep. that you say, I'm so sorry, that wasn't about you. I'm in a bad mood. I shouldn't have yelled at you. Right. This notion that children and people should never be uncomfortable is ridiculous. That's how we learn. Well, and I think it also, in a way, it also robs the children of their own agency, right? Because as you were saying before, trauma, for instance, does not occur in isolation. No. So it occurs within a system. Right. And so when you're a parent, it's not just what you do to the child. It's not just about, it's not a one-way transmission. It's about an interaction, that's occurring. Mm -hmm. We want to have an interaction such that I, as a parent, I can realize what's my stuff and I can help the child realize what's their stuff. Or I can see the child separate from me. Mm -hmm. So it's not just, because that's, that can be what makes us anxious at Mm -hmm. times that we're, we're looking at the child's behavior and we think that somehow that's a reflection of us as a parent. And then that, that blurs our ability to see what's really going Mm -hmm. on with our child and their development who the, who the kind of person that they are becoming. Right. And then again, we can inadvertently rob them of their agency. What yeah. we want to do is empower that agency because things are going to happen we cannot control. Right. Uncertainty is everywhere. There could be a natural disaster that happens. Do you want to have your child feel like that they can't cope uh, with, with things that happen? No, you want to feel, you want to help them to feel that they can get through things. And also to have perspective of how big of a deal it is. Well, yes. Right? Yes. You know, I, you know, I work with a lot of families where, because, you know, there's a water thing in my hallway that people spill, and whose parents are like, oh, my God, eh, I'm like, spilled water. Here's a paper towel. Clean it up. No big deal. Kids make mistakes. We all make mistakes. How to then help the child realize, you know, on a scale of one to five, this was barely a one. Clean it up. Move on. So that when things are a five, that the reactions are in line with the five. If you have five reactions to every little thing that happens, children don't get that sense of perspective. And this notion of people should never be upset is not human. And also, a friend of mine recently, I hadn't really thought about it from this perspective, but sort of pointed out, it also robs children of good stories. Yeah. You know, it's talking about like, you know, we do all of that we can to protect our children and make sure nothing ever bad happens to them. And then they they have no good stories. Right. Because part of life is the things that were a little challenging that you overcame and you dealt with. And And it helps to give you perspective, too. Yeah. And it helps you appreciate the things that really are good and gives you some gratitude. If everything's easy, there's no sense of accomplishment. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I don't know, do you have anything else that you want to share? What, I mean, things in working with 
your I, families that you I, see I that you want to share? I think that, you know, I... And I, and I know this is tricky, which is why I'm pausing. I think that one of the, the most important things for me is that people keep in mind that every individual is an individual. Mm-hmm. And yes, we have shared experiences and collective experiences, but at the end of the day, people have unique ways of reacting to certain things. And that while public policy is great, it's also important to realize that not everybody is the same. Mm-hmm. And not to judge anybody, you know, for other people, which was not well said. But the other thing, you know, that I think is so important is that often, especially parents who tend to be very strong and resilient, tend to, when their children have reactions that they wouldn't have, kind of do the, oh, you're overreacting. And I think that is equally problematic. Yeah. I think it's important, as you were saying, to kind of know who you are as a parent and how you're separate from your child, that maybe your child is reacting in a way that you wouldn't. Right. But for them, it really is that big. Right. Right. And so to try to understand what's making it that big and to help them cope with it rather than doing the shaming, oh, you're overreacting. And it, and see, it's so tough. This is why, again, nothing is black and white, right? So it's all this gray, but that's where all the rich complexity Absolutely. and all the Absolutely, but the it good doesn't make is. for good parenting books, but it do, no, right? Exactly, no, exactly. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah. But but that yet again, there you know there will be times when you will notice that your child does have an overreaction. Right. And so at the same time, you don't want to feed into that as well. So it's not an either or all the time. No. You have to really understand the situation. Yes. The context and, and have a way of speaking to your child so that you can determine what what is this here? Is right. this an overreaction? Right. Or is this really, okay, I wouldn't have reacted this way right. and her reaction is making me uncomfortable, but that's my stuff but this really upset her right. or him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, and, and, and trying to kind of separate out, you know, is the child overshooting? Yes. You know, is it that the child is actually having an appropriate reaction and the parent is an undershooter? And I see this a lot with parents who have abuse histories, who very rightly had horrible childhoods, who have done a very good job of being good parents, who've made sure their children have not been traumatized, but who then don't necessarily understand normal childhood reactions, mm-hmm. right? It's kind of that, that horrible thing. I like, I hate this like stereotypical, like, what are you crying about? I'll give you something to cry about, right? Yeah. But why are they upset? They, like, this wasn't a bad thing. <laughs> but life is in comparison. For the child, it very well could be a very upsetting thing. And just because the parent wouldn't find it upsetting, and that, that's tricky because parents aren't always very good at remembering what it's like to feel like a five-year-old. Right, exactly. Yeah. When you're that age and that size, things tend to be a bigger deal. And I think, too, is something as the children get older, too, as you're working with them on their emotional reactions and helping them to regulate their responses to things, is to help them become aware of how their reactions do affect other people, mm-hmm. but you can and you can do this in a way that doesn't shame them. Absolutely, you can just say, "When you reacted that way, did you notice how your friends were a little? They were scared, right? And is there is there something that you can do in the future? Like just remove yourself from the mm-hmm. situation in the moment so that you can go have your reaction in private right. and then be able to come back because they don't know what's going on with you and it scares them, type of thing, right? 
but again, doing it in a way that isn't stop embarrassing us. Right. But really to help them understand that they're in a context, other people are going to respond. Then as the other people respond, it could make their own response even worse. I mean, it's all it's all interconnected. Absolutely. So how to be able to deal with those situations effectively, but again, without, without shaming. And, and I don't, I don't think it needs, it doesn't need to be shaming. And I don't think we have a lot of experience in doing that in ways that aren't shaming because it takes work, right? It's easier to say, knock it off. You're embarrassing me. Yes. It's harder to say, okay, X happened. You had Y reaction, right? Was that an expected reaction? Right. From your peers? Or did your peers find that unexpected and a little odd? Right. Right. And if they found it unexpected and odd, now how are they reacting? And how are you reacting to their reaction? And and it's work. It is. You know, it's a lot of work and it's not easy to do. And if you're, you know, if you're stressed, back to that stress thing, it's even harder to do. And I think it's also important to remind parents, you don't have to do it every single time. Yes. If you do that one out of 10 times, you're good. Yeah, exactly. Or even necessarily in the moment. Right. Uh, sometimes what, the, the moment needs to happen. Yeah. And then everybody needs to calm down. Or even a couple days later, you talk about it. I am a big fan of not doing everything in the moment. Yeah. I think that much discussion should happen after everybody's calmed back down and, hey, let's talk about what happened. I think sometimes for certain kids of certain neurologies, they do things impulsively and it's not even worth talking about. It's like they don't even know what they did. Exactly. So it's okay. So how are we going to address helping you with your impulsivity? But we don't need to say, why'd you do that? Because you don't know why you did that. Yeah, exactly. But we get stuck on the why. We always need to know why. (laughs) Yeah. And I think there's this assumption that kids know why. Parents don't get that when you ask your child why, they make stuff up. Of course they do. They're like, you know, because yeah. they were wearing green. And well, then, and not because they're bad, because, <laughs> no, but because, because they actually <laughs> want, what they want to do in that moment is to succeed with you. Absolutely. Right. And so succeeding with you means that you're, they're going to provide you an explanation, yeah. even if they're just making it up, because then they see your reaction. And right. these are all, a lot of this interaction is happening purely at an unconscious level. Absolutely. So they're not thinking, I'm going to say this so that then no. she'll feel happy. It's all... Uh, You know, so much of it is unconscious. So much of it is stuff we're not aware of. So much of it is by a parent asking a question like, why did you do X? That is a very clear message that, one, there should be a why. Two, you should be aware of the why. The kids just like answer the question. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And not thinking about all of that. Exactly. So sometimes what I, I like to do with children is to be able to say, I noticed that when this happened that you did this. Mm -hmm. And I'm just kind of curious, did you notice that? What do you think about that? Yeah. Because then it, it's it's more of a, it's kind of a holding up the mirror to them, so yes. to speak, and gives them an opportunity to reflect. Mm-hmm. And then to talk about, well, I wonder if that happens again. Do you think right. you might notice what's going on mm-hmm. before you actually respond? And what could you do instead kind of thing? And to do that sort of pre-planning uh, right. in, in their minds, but be able to go over those types of scenarios Again, without like, why did you do that? Because right. you're right. That just insinuates it. Well, first of all, there has to be a reason. And right. what you did was wrong. Right. So you better have a good reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And it better be the right reason. And because, it be- <laughs> right. Because when adults ask you questions, there is a right answer. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. I mean, that's how the whole McMartin preschool trials happened. Right. All the, all the research shows that adults have a huge impact on what, what children say to them when they're asking them questions, especially leading questions. Right. No, I mean, that was certainly a great exercise in, you know, how 
to interview children. I mean, yeah. we've learned so much since then on how to interview children, the questions to ask, the questions not to ask. You know, to be very mindful that when you're little and can't take care of yourself, it is vitally important that you figure out how to please the adults in your life. Yeah. And so children please the adults in their life. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They do. We, we could have, like, done this in two seconds. It's complicated. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it's just, it's just complicated. It's just complicated. It is just complicated. And I'd like to thank Dr. Jones for taking the time to talk with me about this topic. I'd also like to thank her for the time she spends reviewing our work here at White Paper Press to ensure its accuracy. And thank you to you, our listeners. We're getting requests and suggestions from you all the time, so keep them coming. And if you have a moment, we'd really appreciate a review from you on iTunes. Reviews help to broaden our exposure and our audience. Until next time.